Good morning, church. If we will stand to your feet and let's worship together. I can see the clouds rolling. I can feel the winds. They try to shake me, but I will not be moved. My feet are on the rock. to the person next to you, give him a high five and say, he is risen. We don't just celebrate that one time out of the year, folks. Okay, that's every Sunday. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. All right, so there is a lot of stuff. This is a heavy bulletin. Uh, I'm not going to recite all of this for you, but you definitely need to take some time and check out all the ministry events that are going on. Uh, the women's ministry has a lot going on. One event is today at 5 p.m. You can come out, fellowship, have some food, kind of hear about what's going on. And then also in your bulletin, there's an insert there about the Mothers and Others Brunch on May the 4th at Saturday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. They have a tremendous testimony that's going to be shared during that gathering. Uh, Dr. Calhoun, uh, her profile is right there in your bulletin. Uh, take some time, invite a friend, uh, your daughter, your aunt, uh, grandmother, mother, and come out and be part of this. It'll be a blessing to you. The men's event, are also, the men's also have an event on the same day. We had to shift the uh, last men's event because of bad weather, but that event will be happening on the 4th as well. The, upper, the information is right there. And then tonight at 6.30, we have a service tonight at 6.30, very special service. We have three men that we are going to be ordaining, which basically means set aside to back them and support them. Uh, in their call into the ministry. Uh, we'd love for you to be here. Our worship team will be leading. I'll be speaking again tonight. We'll have an opportunity to pray together as well. That'll be 6.30 tonight right here in the gym. Let's go to Lord in prayer as our ushers come forward this morning. Lord, you are awesome and mighty. And Father, I have, I have recognized this week in studying and preparing of how often I take your grace for granted. Father, I take it for granted in that 
I don't even think about it sometimes. I don't even think about the grace that you pour out into my life every day, the grace you've given me already today. And Father, I recognize that I, I don't deserve the incredible, lavish love and mercy that you pour out on me every day. Father, forgive me for getting so busy about works of ministry and everything else that's going on in our lives. Forgive me, Father, for just walking by that grace and even taking it for granted and even expecting it. So, Father, I pray that collectively here today, that as we sing, as we take a look at your word, we would pause. We'd be thankful for that undeserved favor you've poured out in our life. You have given us far more than we ever deserved. Far more. Astronomically more. And Father, you just keep giving and giving and giving because you are a good Father. Even, Father, in times when I wasn't living for you the way I ought to be, you still blessed me. And you still gave to me. All in an effort to get my eyes to turn back to you. So, Father, this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we listen to your word, as we contemplate at invitation time how to respond, in all of that, we just want to give you praise and glory and honor. Because, Father, right now, right now, our mind is overwhelmed by all the ways that you have given to us. Thank you for the opportunity to give back. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As I walk this great unknown Questions come and questions go Was there purpose for the pain Or did I cry these tears in vain I don't want to live in fear I want to trust that you are near Trust your grace can be seen in both triumph and tragedy. That I have this hope in the depths of my
it's a good thing to uh, listen to the words in those songs. There's one part that really stood out to me, and it says that regardless of what we're going through, highs, lows, a lot of times there's a whole lot more lows we think in our life than there is highs. But regardless of that, if we are Christ followers, he's not going to let go. He's not going to let go at all. And sometimes we feel like we're the ones that are letting go. We're the ones that are sliding back. We're the ones that are running in the opposite direction. And one of the most, one of the best things that I can think of is that I know that if I'm running in the other direction, he'll leave the 99 and he'll come after me. And that is just an awesome thing to think about. So think about during this next song, Reckless Love.
Hi, Hyde Park. Um, my name is Cameron, and um, I got inspired to do the um, to do the testimony video because I saw the other two testimony videos, and I was like, I'm pretty inspired to do that myself. So um, now I'm here. So um, so what I'm gonna be talking about is how Hyde Park impacted my life for the better and for the good. So, I'm just going to start off at the beginning real quick. Um, I started going to Hyde Park when I was a little kid. But then, I stopped going. Then I went back last year, in June of last year. And I decided to um, restore my faith into Christ last year of June as well. So, I started... Um, going to Hyde Park and when I went back to Hyde Park I changed a lot um last year I was in a dark place so but luckily I'm out of that dark place now um but Hyde Park it it changed my life like in the long run so especially the people that I've met over the like span of like 10 months so I'm thankful for like the people that I've met um like Hyde Park is just amazing to me. They Hyde Park's been amazing to me and my people. So, um, Pastor Jeff, he's absolutely amazing. So, um, my I started going to youth when I was um, yeah I started going to youth last year, um, August or September, and that changed my life for as pretty good as well. Um, met some people that I never thought I would have met without youth group, and now I've become friends with them. And I love the whole youth group ministry. I love the people that attend youth group. I love the people that are involved with youth. Um, we have an amuse, uh, amusing. We have an amazing youth pastor. Um, he's really good with the youth and everything, so that's a good thing. And I started going to CR as well um, in November, and I've been going to CR. CR is like the most amazing thing that I've been going to. I um, go there every single Friday, or at least I try to. CR is like just, it's in my heart. I love CR. I love the CR family. I love the landing. I love the people that's involved with the landing, which is our youth program at CR. Um, I just love everyone that attends CR. I love everyone that goes to CR. I love everyone that works around CR, so... But, um, since I got that beginning part out of the way, um, I, I, I just can't, I can't put into words how Hyde Park changed my life. Um, if someone came up to me right now and say, hey, can you describe Hyde Park in one word? And I would say that word would be amazing. Because Hyde Park has been amazing to me ever since how little and ever since like now. And everyone's just completely amazing. So. Thank you. Cameron, we love you too, brother. And you got a birthday coming up, right? Birthday next week. Happy birthday, brother. Happy birthday. And I do think our, our student pastor is amusing, actually. It's amazing, amusing. I think he had it right the first time, actually, so... Second Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. David has been given rest from all of his enemies. It's amazing when, you, uh, when you're able to step back from your life, how that you're able to contemplate things, think of things that, that maybe you've even forgotten about. Well, that's kind of what David's going to do. He, he is now... Uh, Unified all 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. He is now living inside the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. He has been able to have the Ark of the Covenant brought into the city. Uh, through amazing worship and an amazing time in the life of the nation of Israel, that the Ark of the Covenant is now living or dwelling with the people in a stationary place. If you remember, David wanted to build a temple. 
God said, no, you're not going to build a temple. So David, in the meantime, is, is collecting materials from all over the place to build a temple. Later on, he knows he's not going to be the one to build it, but he's already preparing. The nation is gaining wealth. It's gaining power. Uh, they have continually been chasing the tribes that were living in the land out. Uh, but David gets to a point where he's able to step back from it all. And by the way, there, there needs to be times in your life where you get along with God and you get quiet with God and you step back from everything. Matter of fact, there needs to be scheduled times in your life, whether that's weekly, monthly, or at least quarterly, where you just kind of get along with God, get quiet before him so you can get a little perspective on what God's doing in your life. It'll be incredibly healing for you. It'll be incredibly valuable to you. And once you start doing it, you won't ever stop. Because there's something about stepping out of our schedule, and I don't know about you, but your schedule is just like mine. It's full of stuff. There's stuff in my schedule I don't even know about, honestly. It'll, it'll show up, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my goodness, I've got to do that. And it's valuable for us to step out of the rat race every so often to get some perspective. Well, David is getting some perspective on things. At the height of the wealth and power, becoming a unified nation, having the Ark of the Covenant just down the street from where he lives, everything is going really well for David and for the kingdom. And it's at this moment in chapter 9, verse 1, I want you to notice what he remembers. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, to understand what David is thinking about here, we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. So turn back over there, if you will, please. 1 Samuel chapter 20. So at this point in time, in David's life, he is still struggling with the reality that he's been anointed king. He's also struggling with what Saul now is doing towards David, that by the time we get to this point in David's journey, Saul has already attempted to kill David. Now, Saul had invited David into his inner courtroom to play music for him because when he would play music for Saul, Saul's soul would kind of be comforted in those moments. So David has been going in and out of the kingdom, but things are beginning to change, and David wants to kind of get his arms around where Saul is in respect to him. So Jonathan and David have become best friends. Jonathan is Saul's son. So you have the son of the king, the reigning king, the people's choice, Saul. Jonathan is his son, and Jonathan and David have become best friends, and David is turning into the enemy of Saul. So you can see how this particular set of circumstances is getting very dangerous for David and for Jonathan. So they come up with a plan to try to figure out, does Saul want to take David out? Well, there's going to be a meal. And David and Jonathan come up with an idea that David is not going to go to the meal, and Jonathan is going to observe how Saul handles that. And once he observes that and comes to some conclusions, he's going to go back out and meet with David and say, you know, David, I don't think it's all that bad. I, think, I don't think my, my dad's after you. Or Saul, uh, Jonathan's going to go to David and say, yeah, it's pretty bad. You better not go back around Saul. So this all plays out. Saul reveals that he has a deep hatred for David. Jonathan realizes this, goes back out to see David. And they're having to do this in secret because if the king, who's already angry with David, sees his own son plotting with David, they could both lose their life. So they go into hiding, and David and Jonathan are going to have a conversation. And basically, Jonathan's going to tell David, look, it's bad. It's really bad. And you're, you're going to have to flee. You're going to have to get out of here. And in verse 14... Because Jonathan and David love each other, they're best friends. After they've had this conversation about David needing to flee, notice what Jonathan says to David in verse 14. He says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of the David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan in this moment, when they've come to the conclusion that David is going to have to flee, that in his dad, Saul, in fact, wants to take David's life, Jonathan looks at David and says, Look, David, I know that you are the anointed king of Israel rather than my dad. I know that the people chose my father because of his stature, but listen, God has chosen you, and I know that you're going to become king. Now, Jonathan also knew that in the, the day in which they lived, there was a common practice. That when a, king, when a new king came to power, 
that king, as his first order of business, after he dealt with the, the city or dealt with the mansion, dealt with where he's going to live, when he got some things established and got his leadership in place, he would take and call all the family of the previous king together. In other words, they would seek you out no matter where you were hiding. They would bring you back before the king, and more likely, most often, your head would be taken off of your shoulders. At the very least, you'd be enslaved, put in prison for the rest of your life as long as that king was in charge. And the reason the king would do that is because you're a threat. Now imagine what kind of threat Jonathan would be to David, being the first son of Saul. Jonathan would be the one who's in line for the kingdom. If anything happens to Saul, Jonathan would be the one in line. But Jonathan says, look, David, I know that you are the anointed king. So when you become king, whenever it is, if I'm still alive, would you be willing to show me grace? In other words, would you be willing to not do what the culture says and take my life? Would you, would you be willing to extend to me grace and mercy because of our friendship and our love for one another? Notice what David says. Well, look at verse 16. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. A covenant. A promise. Uh, in, our, in our vernacular, it would be like a contract. The best way I can describe this for you is, is the covenant of marriage. So in a covenant of marriage, you stand before God and man, and you say that you are going to keep some vows to another person. That you are going to an agreement with this person out of love, driven by love, that you are going to be with this person for the rest of your life. And that's what the other person says and vows to you. That's a covenant. So Jonathan and David enter into a covenant where Jonathan says to David, David, please take care of my family when you become king. Don't kill us like every other king does and show us love and show us grace. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So David and Jonathan enter into an agreement some 15 years previous out in a field. And from this moment on, David is going to be on a run for his life. From this moment on, Saul is going to be coming after David continuously trying to take David out. So at this moment, David is going to run away. Jonathan is going to go back to his Saul's house, to his household. And from that day on, David was a sworn enemy of the kingdom. Now go back to 2 Samuel 9. So here we are many years later. Saul and Jonathan are dead. They died on the battlefield. And in this moment of, of, of victory, in this moment of success, in this moment of David's power and authority, David sits back on his throne and he begins to think about all that God has done. And all of a sudden he remembers that day on the field when he and Jonathan made this covenant. It's when he's able to get alone and step back from everything that he remembers this. And he asks the question, is there anyone left? of the household of Saul and Jonathan, that I may show kindness. In other words, is there anyone that I can show grace to, undeserved favor to, this part of the household of Saul? Well, there's a servant in David's house named Ziba, verse 3, or verse 2. Now, Ziba was a servant in Saul's household, so if there's anyone who would know, it would be Ziba. So they bring Ziba to David. David says, are you Ziba? Are you the servant of Saul? He says, I am. And he says, I am your servant. Verse 3, the king said, Is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So Ziba says to the king, King, there is one son of Jonathan. And he's living in another household in the town or in the community of Lodabar. Now, if we, look at, if we look at the rest of 2 Samuel, and the more you move into Samuel, you'll find out that this Saul had some other sons. And those other sons were by concubines, but there is only one grandson, one son of Jonathan, and this is the one that, John, that David has determined in his heart that he's going to keep the promise to Jonathan that he had made so many years earlier. And his name is Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth's name means shame. If you look at the First Chronicles account of this same story or where it gives his name, in First Chronicles, his name is referred to as Merib Baal. In other words, named after a false god, Baal, and his name means shame. And that this young man is lame in both of his feet. I want you to see why that happened. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Now, right about the time... 
that David is going to be declared king in chapter 5. Right before that, there is absolute chaos in the household of Saul. Saul and Jonathan have died on the battlefield. And that turns the whole household of Saul into chaos. Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, decides that he's going to be king. He's the next in line. He's the one. He begins to exert his authority. He wants to become king. Jonathan is dead. It falls to Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is a horrible leader. So horrible that his own people kill Ishbosheth. Now, this is what's going on in the household. Inside this household, they found out that Saul and Jonathan are dead. They all know that another king is going to rise to power, more than likely going to be David. And what happens when a new king comes to power? Well, all the previous family is wiped out. Verse 4, chapter 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. He was five years old when he hears that his father and his grandfather has been killed. And in that same instance, his uncle has just been murdered by his own people. There is absolute chaos. And this, this young man is five years old experiencing all of this. He had a nursemaid. The kingdom is falling apart. The, the nursemaid grabs Mephibosheth, and they begin to flee for their lives. And during that, that time of fleeing, Mephibosheth falls and gets injured, and that's how he becomes lame in his legs. In other words, at age five, before all this went down, he was a happy five-year-old, just like any other kid. But all of a sudden, an accident happens, and now he is lame in both of his feet and has to be carried out of the kingdom because of this injury. And you know where they go? They go to Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? It means pastureless land. In other words, get the, get the landscape, absolutely barren wasteland, almost like a desert. In other words, Lodabar, as we can find it on a map, is over near the border of where the Arabian desert begins. So this nursemaid takes Mephibosheth, whose name means shame, and even named after a false god, and they flee for their lives some 30 to 50 miles to the northeast, to the edge of the Arabian desert, in the middle of nowhere. You see, nobody ever went to Lodabar. If you're going to Lodabar, you're going somewhere else. You're not going to Lodabar. If you're going to Lodabar, you're going to hide out, and that's exactly what this nursemaid does because they know when the next king comes to power that this young man's life is going to be number one on the list for the new king to be finding and bringing before him and either enslaving or taking his life. Go back to chapter 9. So now you know who Mephibosheth is. Shameful. You know where he's living, Lodabar, no pasture, no, no greenery, which means there's probably no way to, to take care of animals there, and animals meant money. So you get this idea of them living in a desolate, broken place. And Mephibosheth, every day of his life, he's looking over his shoulder. By the time we find him in chapter 9, he's probably... He's probably somewhere right around 20, 25. We find out that he's got a son now, but he's still lame in both of his legs. He's still having to be cared for by other people. And his life is being ruled by fear. Fear that one day he's going to be found. One day that David's going to find out where he is, that one day somebody's going to send a garrison to bring him to the king and that his life is going to end. Can you imagine living every single day looking over your shoulder at who's coming up behind you? Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe, maybe that describes your life. You know, we can find plenty of places to run to. There's plenty of Lodabars for us to run to and hide. And what drives us there is fear. What drives us into these places of hiding is fear. For Mephibosheth, the only reason he's in Lodabar is to survive. Because in his mind, in his mind, he is a marked man. So David says to Ziba, verse 5, King David sent a garrison to bring Mephibosheth to Jerusalem. Now imagine Mephibosheth living in Lodabar, every day watching over his shoulder, every day looking 
for that day that's going to show up where David's going to come find him. And then one day, in the distance, in the dust, he sees what looks like a detachment, a garrison coming into Lodabar. And he's hoping with everything in him that that garrison is going to pass right on through Lodabar like every other garrison. Because nobody comes to Lodabar, there's no reason to be there unless you're hiding. But as that garrison gets closer, he begins to realize that the seal that's on the flags that they're carrying is none other than the seal of the household of King David. And Mephibosheth begins to realize that that garrison is coming for him. And Mephibosheth realizes that now his day has come. The garrison comes, knocks on his door, gathers Mephibosheth up. He can't walk, so they have to carry him out. I don't know if they put him on a, a donkey or a camel or on a cart, but nonetheless, they're going to have to make a some 30, maybe even 50-mile journey from Lodabar. We don't know exactly where Lodabar is, so it could be somewhere between 30 and 50 miles. That is a huge journey in David's day. For us, no big deal. For Mephibosheth, huge deal. And think about that entire journey. What is Mephibosheth thinking about? That moment that he's going to be brought before the king. That's what I'd be thinking about. And in those moments, he's trying to come up with some kind of argument, something that he can share with David that he could somehow receive mercy. Now, you would imagine that Mephibosheth's thinking, well, you know, I, I, I'm lame in my legs. What am I going to offer King David? And not only that, I'm of the household of the previous king, and that king was trying to kill him. So what possible, what possible grounds do I have to offer the king anything? And I would imagine that on this 30-mile journey, he is re uh, rehearsing in his mind what he's going to do, but he keeps coming back to the reality that he has nothing, nothing to offer this king. Nothing. And then finally, the garrison makes their way into the city of Jerusalem. They come through the gate, and Mephibosheth sees David's house in the distance. The time of reckoning has come. And they bring Mephibosheth in, they have to carry him in and drop him in front of David the king. Now the moment has arrived. Mephibosheth has been practicing, Mephibosheth has been thinking, Mephibosheth has been going over in his mind, what is he going to do in that moment? And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, verse 6, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. That word homage means worship. So here's Mephibosheth who can't stand. The only thing he knows to do is to lay himself down completely on the floor as low as he can get with his hands outstretched before the king because there's no way he can stand, there's no way he can bow. All he can do is put himself as low to the ground as he possibly can. And I would imagine that if he could have, he would have dug a hole and climbed in it. Because he knows he has nothing in that moment to offer King David. And King David holds all the power. He fell on his face and paid homage. And David calls his name Mephibosheth. And he answers, Behold, I am your servant. What possible service could Mephibosheth offer to David? He's a broken man with a broken past. Not only that, he's aligned with the kingdom that David just replaced. In other words, this man is nothing more than an enemy of David's. Simply because he was born into the household of Saul. And that same grandfather was the one who tried to kill David on multiple occasions. What better opportunity to get out some revenge than with this lame man who lays before David. And he says, I am your servant. In other words, some kind of attempt to say, I'll serve you, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Is there any possible way that I could find grace? You know what grace is, right? It's undeserved favor. Grace is, is when we receive something that we know we don't deserve. In that moment, what Mephibosheth is asking for is something he knows he doesn't deserve. But somehow, some way, maybe somehow, this could work out. Now remember, Mephibosheth has no idea that there was a promise made between his father and the king many years before. Mephibosheth has no idea when he's on his face before the king that there was a promise made between that king and his dad years previous. Has no idea. Notice how David responds. David said to him, Do 
not fear. This man has spent his whole life in fear. This man has spent his entire life afraid. Afraid of this moment, afraid. And, and the first words out of David's mouth is, do not fear? That almost seems, that almost seems I don't know, crazy. Why, why would the king even begin to say anything like this? Do not fear? And David continues, for I will show you kindness. I will show you grace for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Get this moment, folks. Here's a guy who has nothing to offer the king. And the king offers him everything. A restored life. The opportunity to not only have land and possessions, but to have servants that are going to plant the fields and bring the harvest in for him to eat. That in that moment, you have a lost, poor beggar who's lame, who now becomes a king himself. He's given the property of his grandfather, Saul. He's given servants and given Ziba. Ziba who's now going to be the one who manages the kingdom for him. And this man is going to get to rule. This man is going to get to have a home. This man is going to get to have food. This man is going to get to have an existence free from fear. That he doesn't have to fear anymore. He doesn't have to be afraid of David who has the ability to take his life. That in a single moment in time, all the wrath of the king is turned away. And in that moment, all he experiences is the grace that he never deserved. I hope you're starting to see some connections here because they're pretty on the surface, right? They're right there for you. You see, at age 16, after hearing about a God who loved me multiple times, seeing the love of God lived out in my mom and dad, knowing that my dad was in his bedroom praying for me, knowing that, hearing him call my name out in prayer multiple times as I would go into my bedroom, which was right across the hall, knowing that when I would stay out late and I would come home, the last light in the house to be turned off would be that bedroom. I could see it under the door, and I knew what my dad was doing. He was praying for my salvation multiple times. You know what I did? I ran back to Lodabar. I ran back to a place I could hide. I ran back to a place where I could resist. I ran back to a place where I thought I had it all figured out. But all along, there was a fear that gripped my heart. This understanding that there was a king. And that king had every right to take my life. Because I was aligned with another kingdom. You see, I was born into a kingdom. I was born into a kingdom of darkness. I already had a king. His name was Satan. I was already serving him and serving in that world of darkness. I was an enemy of the state. How in the world could I come to God the Creator? How in the world could I bridge this gap? The fact of the matter is that gap had already been bridged. All I had to do, all I had to do is accept the gift that had already been given in Jesus Christ. But see, I came to him with nothing. And I left with everything. I came with nothing. No good works. No, good, no amount of money. I came expecting to get maybe, maybe just to be a servant in the kingdom. And the king made me a son. Notice what David did. Look, David restores his land. David gives him servants. But David goes far beyond that. Verse 9, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I give, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat always at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table like one of the king's sons. Can we just agree that that is far beyond anything anybody could have ever imagined from David. Far beyond. Okay, give him some service, give him some land, make sure he's taken care of. But David said, no, we're going to get even farther. We're going to invite Mephibosheth to eat at the king's table. Get this picture. 
at this long banquet table, maybe in the dining hall of the king. And it is ornate and it is beautiful and it's a long table because David has a big family. And then they would come together for a big meal. And then would come David's sons, the, the mighty sons of David who were serving in military, serving as rulers, leaders all through this nation, administrators. He, he's got all of his army people there who lead his military. He's got all of his best people there. And his daughter comes in and his sons come in and they all pull up a chair and they sit down at this table that is huge. And maybe David's sitting at the end of it, but there's one table down there among his sons, one chair right down there among his sons that's empty. And all of a sudden, two servants come walking in with Mephibosheth who's lame in his legs. And they pull that chair out and they set Mephibosheth in that chair and they slide him up. He doesn't deserve to be there. He doesn't. But because the king has decreed that this man will be there, he is treated like one of the king's own sons. Far beyond anything that Mephibosheth could have ever imagined. No longer is he afraid. No longer does he have to worry about what's going to happen the next day or the next day. No longer does he have to live frozen in fear. Now, he's experienced the grace of the king. You know, I, I, down through my life, there's been times where people have given me something and it's kind of hard to receive sometimes, isn't it? Maybe, maybe one time you were eating at a nice restaurant and you saw some friends when you came in and you waved at them and they waved at you and you went over and sat down and you ordered your food and, you know, it t- came time for the waitress to come and bring you the bill and she never does. And then you have to flag her down and say, hey, uh, where's the bill? You never brought the bill. Oh, that family that you waved at right over there, they, they paid for yours. They, they paid for your, for your meal. You know what we often do in that moment? Well, I, I, man, I got to get them back. Man, I got to do something. You call them up and say, hey, let me, let me pay for half of that, right? You don't need to pay for all that. But I really appreciate it. And we try to do some kind of work when grace is being extended rather than just receiving the gift and appreciating the fact that, yes, we don't deserve it, and, yes, we have nothing to offer, but somebody gave you something that you didn't deserve. Can't we just receive that? Can, can we not just receive it and thank God for the fact that we've got something we know we shouldn't have? How, how futile it would have been for Mephibosheth to look up at David and say, well, David, you know, I really need to do some works right, to earn this. Really, David, there's something I ought to do. Look, you, no, don't give me the gift. Let me work it out. So many of you this morning are doing exactly that week after week after week after week. God is offering you the opportunity to be forgiven of your sins, to come into faith into Him and have your life changed from the inside out. And what do we do? We say, oh, no, I got it. I'm going to work it all out. See, you're Mephibosheth, and you're living in Lodabar. And isn't it about time you recognize the grace of God that's being extended to you? Disciple of Christ. Listen, that grace of God is not just the grace you experienced when you became born again, but God's grace is alive and working in you every single day of your life. That undeserved favor you've already experienced today when you got out of bed, out of a warm bed this morning, got some food, some breakfast out of the cupboard, got in your car and drove here. Over and over and over again, God lavishes His grace on us. You know why he does that? It's because you're a son and a daughter now. And you have a place at the table that you never deserved. There will be a day when we'll all gather together with the king. And I'm going to be sitting at that table. And sitting at that table is going to be the likes of Paul the Apostle. Sitting at that table is going to be John the revelator. Sitting at that table is going to be people that I've read about in the Bible who've done incredible works in the kingdom of God. But here's the amazing thing. Everybody sitting at that table got there the same way through the grace of God. Not because they had money, not because they were special, but because they experienced the grace of God, uh, God's undeserved favor. We're in that moment we had nothing to offer Him, and God turned right around and gave us the entire kingdom. And adopted us as sons and daughters. I'm afraid that we've gotten so used to grace that we take it for granted. We've sung about it. We've talked about it. We've thought about it. We've, we've got bumper stickers about it. We've got stuff knitted in pillows about it. But do we really know 
how much grace we've experienced. You know, living in Lodabar is a scary place. But you know what? God will come all the way to Lodabar to show you his grace. He will walk right into the barren places. He will walk right into the broken places. And he will scream loudly at you to come home. But he will never force you. You've got to make a choice. You've got to express faith in what has already been done on your behalf. You've got to express faith, believing and repenting, willing to turn away and to turn towards Christ and allow him to change your life. Why? Why are we still looking towards the world to get, that what, get what God is already offering to us by his grace? Grace gives us far more than we ever deserve. It lavishes on us what we do not expect. It changes our lives in ways we could not possibly imagine. You can't afford it and you can't earn it. But you can receive it freely. It's available to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are to grow in grace. So once we come to faith in Christ, and He changes our life, gives us a brand new life, adopts us as his sons and daughters, then we are to grow in that grace. What does that mean? Well, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. In other words, to continue to understand, to be thankful and grateful for what God's given us every single day, that it's an act of his grace and an act of his mercy, but also to be able to be willing to show that grace to other people. To give undeserved favor to those who may even have wronged us. So when we experience grace, we're called to dispense grace. We're called into the grace of God, and we experience it, and we see it, and we love it, and we're amazed by it. But how in the world can we experience God's grace yet get right up, walk right out, and withhold it from someone else? We are to grow in that grace. And it's not about what we do. It's about what God does in and through us. We begin to grow in His grace. Growing in grace simply is the same thing we say when we're growing in Christ, maturing in faith. It's the same exact thing. What we call to be sanctification, which basically means growing to be more like Christ every single day of our life, talking like Him, thinking like Him, acting like Him. And how would Christ act and how would Christ speak? With grace. With grace. So maybe today you find yourself in Lodabar. A desolate, desolate place. God will definitely walk right into that desolation. He will extend that grace and mercy. It's available to you. You don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to be afraid of what tomorrow holds. You don't have to be afraid of a God who's going to hold you accountable. If you reject Christ, he will absolutely hold you accountable, and you absolutely will experience the wrath of God. But that doesn't have to be the final story. God's grace, as we bring ourselves before him, understanding that we have nothing to offer him. And then in that moment, we get undeserved favor as we express faith in him and what Christ has done on our behalf. We don't pay for it. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. It's available. We must receive it. Maybe it's time to come out of Lodabar. And maybe it's time to experience his grace. Father in heaven, we, uh, we are grateful for your continued kindness and mercy in our lives because we realize we don't deserve it. I, I have a hard time understanding, Father, why you would do so much for me. I have a hard time understanding why you would pursue me the way that you do and you give me so much. But, Father, that's who you are. Your word says that you are love. And, Father, we see it played out in the life of Mephibosheth and David, we see right there, we see, we see that we were once Mephibosheth living in Lodabar. For those who have come to faith in Christ, they have experienced your grace. I pray, Father, we would not just simply take that for granted. But, Father, there are others who still haven't. And, Father, your grace is sufficient. Father, maybe the reason they're hiding out, maybe the reason they're continually rejecting is maybe because, Father, they feel like they've gone too far. Maybe they're believing the lie that Satan is telling them that 
That that one act, that one sin, that one thing that they've done has taken them beyond the grace of God and therefore they will be the one that when they come to, when they come to that place to surrender to God, that God's going to reject them and cast them out. It's all lies. It's all lies. So Father, I, I pray that and ask this morning as I've done many other times. That they would just get tired of the fear, tired of the brokenness, and turn their eyes upon a Savior, a King, who is willing to lavish upon them such love that they've never felt in their life. And not only today, but for all eternity. How could we walk by such an offer? Oh, we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's sing together. If you have a need, I'll be glad to pray with you. thank you for your goodness and your mercy and you've given us grace to dispel grace to give it out to distribute to those around us who believe they've gone too far so Father help us to be conduits of your grace and your love this week even today even as we go to the restaurants as we we go to get lunch uh, may we exhibit grace to our waiters and servers May we let your love shine through us brightly. Father, you said that we would be known by our love. So help us to show that love today. That people may know that they're loved by you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.